Welcome to the Sports Pro Podcast. Hi everyone and welcome once again to the Sports Pro Podcast. My name is Owen Connolly. I'm the editor-at-large at Sports Pro. Hope you're well. Good to be back just a couple of days before the Tokyo 2020 Olympic Games begin uh, on the 23rd of July 2021. So we already know that something is up. We're going to get into all of that, what's to come in the next couple of weeks, what people's expectations and impressions are, uh, and what it all means uh, from a commercial point of view as well. And to go through that conversation, I'm very happy to welcome Ricardo Fort, founder of Sport by Fort and uh, former global head of sponsorship at Coca-Cola. Hello, Ricardo. Hello. Good to talk to you. Good to talk to you too. And also joining us is Sports Pro Deputy Editor, Sam Karp. Hello, Sam. Hi, Owen. Good to be back. How, how are you doing? Not too bad. Not too bad. It's, uh, it's pretty warm here in London, I would say. Nowhere near as warm as it's going to be either in Tokyo or in Atlanta, where Ricardo is joining us from. But um, yeah, lots to, lots to dive into in the Olympic Games. We are recording this about two, three days out from the opening ceremony. Uh, obviously, the next couple of podcasts in this strand on the, on the Thursday are going to be focused on the Olympic Games. We've got lots of coverage coming up on the site, Sam, which I'm sure we'll get into as well over the course of this podcast. Um, and we're going to talk about what some of these unique challenges mean for the relationships between the Olympics and fans and the relationship between the Olympics and sponsors and, and other partners. Um, and we also have, Sam, a new issue of Sports Pro Magazine now, issue 100. And fourteen. What can you what can you tell us about that? We do Owen, another another edition of the magazine to promote. I feel like I spend half of my appearances on the podcast promoting things. But uh, <laughs> yes, the first the first copies of issue one hundred and fourteen should be arriving through the letterbox towards the end of this week, if not at the start of next. I guess depending on depending on where you are in the world. Um, but yeah, unsurprisingly, the cover story for this edition is is of course Tokyo twenty twenty, um, an event as you say that we're going to get into with Ricardo as, as the podcast goes on. Um, there's, a, there's a big overview piece in there, which we was kind of tag-teamed, I suppose, by uh, by Tom King, our, our writer based out in Singapore, and our editorial director, Michael Long. Um, and that feature is also going online on Wednesday this week, which, so by the, by the time this pod goes out, we'll be able to read that online as well. Um, yeah, <laughs> I should say. Um, but yeah, so, you know, it ultimately tracks Tokyo's journey from from being awarded the Games in 2013, the the promise and, and the optimism that, that came with that. Then obviously the postponement last year and the fallout from it, the, the changes at the top of the organising committee with Yoshiro Mori obviously departing in, in the last few months. Uh, the public, the public opposition in Japan, um, but you know, it also ultimately kind of goes into a little bit about the host nations' perseverance and you know what have been really pretty unworkable, un- unenviable circumstances. Um, and yeah, and on, on top of that big picture, we've also on top of that big picture piece, we've also uh, got an article that I put together on kind of a sponsorship perspective heading into the games uh an article that ricardo will actually be quite familiar about because i because i spoke to him for it um as well as a few other people just to you know try and get my head around you know where sponsors will be worried about missing out on value in tokyo how they've been affected by the postponement uh you know whether they're even going to be that keen to promote their association with the event and you know if they are 
what they've what they've got to do to get the messaging right um, at what is obviously quite a risky time to be promoting your brand. Um, and then Owen, you yourself uh, wrote a piece on what the Olympics could look like by twenty forty, I believe it was, and I, I have read it, but you know maybe maybe you want to shed a little bit more light on that one in, in case I get it wrong. <laughs> the um, games of this year are going to be different from any that we've seen before, and, and any that hopefully any that we'll see again. Um, and what I wanted to do was look past, not just this year, but past this stretch of games that we've got coming up and, you know, again, lent on the experience of some people from inside, uh, the Olympic movement, some people who've worked around the Olympic movement, Ricardo got an airing there as well. Um, and, uh, just tried to think about what some of the, the seeds are at the moment, what we're going to see through these next four, five, six games, which all have hosts, all but one, only 2030 doesn't have a host attached at this point. And think about, well, what is it going to look like by the 2030s and, and into 2040? Um, so considering that from the perspective of the games themselves, where are they physically going to be held? Is the In spite of the fact that you have major cities now pegged to stage the next run, um, is this continuing kind of tension between the IOC is an event promoter and the, uh, and, and the city hosts, is that going to create more flexibility? There's already been a degree of that exhibited in, in the awarding of, of the next few games and how they're being composed. But, you know, what's the logical extent of that? Um, what, what's the experience going to be like for fans, whether they're present or whether they're remote? What's the extent to which you're going to start seeing digital participation, whether we're going to start seeing different types of physical participation. I know we've got a, uh, a mass participation marathon in, in Paris. Where does that bring to bring in other, other stakeholders who are putting on those kind of events? Regionally, what are we going to see? And then also, where does the Olympic movement go? And I think that's kind of the, the bigger question is, what's the Olympic brand and how much does that now come to fill the gaps between one games and the next? And is that now? Because, you know, just to go back to the premise of the article, which is a, a fantastic way of telling it in, a, in an audio format. But um, if you look at the last great kind of generational shift of the Olympics, maybe 30, 35 years ago, um, and I talked to Michael Payne a little bit about this, around LA 84 and around um, the kind of financial crisis that the Games was in then, even if there's a kind of a lot of questions about the game's identity and its relationship with cities right now. One thing it doesn't have in spite even of Tokyo is, is a financial crisis going on. Uh, the IOC is pretty solvent. It's got very long-term deals in place with very big companies. Um, you know, the likes of NBC, a few other broadcast partners, the likes of Coca-Cola, uh, Alibaba, etc. And so it's building from a different kind of position. And that's probably... Uh, where where some of those interesting questions are going to be filtered through, then you've got the role of athletes and you've got the role of um, of fans as well. And I think, you know, not to give people too much to do, but an interesting bit of background reading would be a couple of pieces I've done. One on cities uh, about this time last year, one on federations this year, and kind of who runs sport now and where the power bases are and you know where new sports are going to come from because I think. That ultimately is is going to be as critical to the future of the, of the games as anything else. 
Yeah, for sure. Well, um, well, yeah, plenty, plenty of Tokyo stuff to pick through in the magazine. Ricardo, what did do, I mean? Do you have any thoughts on that medium-term direction of the Olympic Games once you've come out of this? This quite, I mean, in spite of what we've seen with COVID, this quite secure little stretch now with all those hosts in place. What What are your thoughts on the kind of questions that the movement is going to face in that? next 15 20 years i think i think the the games are going to to have very different questions in the next 10 years that we had in the past 10 so if you if you look back to the kind of discussions that sponsors and broadcasters were involved in the last 10 years um there there's some some basic things like the games are always great they're always well done well executed um brands are promoting so all of that will continue to happen i have no doubt Having said that, there there were a lot of things that we had to deal with in the last few games that we will not have to deal with in future games. So when you look back and you think about um, uh, Rio, uh, the disorganization, um, will infrastructure ever be ready? Um, Zika virus. So these kind of things were specific to Rio, but I think the the, the lack of organization was was what the games are going to be remembered for. Um, if you look, if you think about uh, Sochi, all the discussions on uh, LGBTQI, how they are treated, and a lot of things that sponsors had to deal with. If you think about you know uh, uh, Pyeongchang. There was almost a you know a, a, a nuclear war about to happen days before the, the Olympics. So we sponsors they have to deal with all the work, the things that we 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 pay for that we want to do, and then we have to deal with all these other things that come up with uh, with the games, which which are normal, and you, you just have to to handle them. Uh, so when Tokyo was selected, everybody celebrated because that's great. It's going to be very easy. We didn't know what was about to happen. But when you look uh, to the, the next uh, few games. When you think about uh, passing a uh, Beijing, but when you look at Paris, uh, Milano Cortina, and then LA, and then 2030, and then eventually uh, Brisbane, uh, these are more predictable games. But I think the questions that um, sponsors will have to deal with uh, and the world will be dealing with are around, in addition to sport, how uh, uh, incl- inclusion, diversity, uh, sustainability, human rights, all of that are going to be addressed in you know all, all of these events. So it will continue to be a great platform. Um, you know brands continue to invest, uh, but you you have other things to be you know to uh, to to be worried about as you prepare for uh, all these games. Yeah, and we'll we'll come back to that dichotomy between the, the interest of brands in the short term and the interest of the IOC as a rights holder in, in a much much longer span and. And some of the things that that lie ahead, I think, towards the end of the podcast, or certainly towards the second half of the podcast, when we get a bit deeper into the sponsorship question. But Sam, um, all that coverage is, is going to be appearing on the site, as you say, in in the next few days. Um, so everyone, keep an eye out for that, and keep an eye out for some of our live and, and more reactive coverage, um, both from Asia with Tom King, and also uh, through the day here reaction um from this side of the world over the next couple of weeks but let's reflect a bit on what we're seeing on the ground and we're obviously getting it very much second and and third hand here um and and, you know maybe that we get some more on the ground reaction um as people get settled into the games but 
what um what's the picture that we're seeing it's it's a much more limited games but it's already looking like a very complicated week uh in the run up to the opening ceremony i mean the uh the the ceo of tokyo 2020 toshiro muto was quoted this morning as we're talking tuesday uh as saying that he couldn't rule out a last minute cancellation which i think suggests not that the games aren't going to happen perhaps but certainly that there are going to be unexpected obstacles still ahead yeah for sure i think um since everyone started arriving in tokyo i think it's just sort of illustrated how what you know what a logistical nightmare how complex the next sort of two or three weeks are going to be you've already had um you know the first competitors testing positive in the athletes village um members of staff traveling over who have been in contact with people who have tested positive having to isolate so it's already having an impact you know on on the preparation of athletes themselves um which obviously have knock-on effects for sort of how those how the how those events are going to sort of look but i think what what it's sort of ultimately shown already is that these olympics as you've kind of already alluded to owen is that they're going to be entirely unlike any other we've seen in the past and certainly unlike one that um japan envisaged it would be hosting when it was awarded the games back in 2013 i think thomas back um the ioc president said last week um as i think he's repeated on numerous occasions that japan is is the best ever prepared olympics host and <laughs> Having seen what sort of happened in the last seven or eight days, I think that's simply because it has to be, right? Um, I don't doubt that Japan would have done a really good job of, of hosting these games had they gone ahead last year. I think those of us who, you know, there was a global audience for the for the Rugby World Cup and we all saw what a great job they did of that. And this was kind of just going to be another level of that. I don't, I don't think anyone doubted that that was kind of going to happen again. But at this stage, it's just a kind of, completely new role as in, in what they've kind of got to do it's not necessarily the celebratory it's not quite the sort of celebratory tone instead it's sort of it's just a case of getting from a to b i think um i heard the other day masa takaya who is a spokesperson for the tokyo organizing committee and he's been involved in the process all the way back to um japan's failed bid for the 2016 games he basically described the process um as a marathon uh which i think is is probably right you know any anyone who's kind of run one of those or had the misfortune of running one of those in the past will tell you that it's simply about getting to the finish line. I don't know, I kind of feel like that's what this is about now. It's it's about getting through these next these next three weeks and just making sure that, that the event does go off with, you know, as little major incident as possible. Yeah, I think it's gone from being a marathon to one of those trail runs where you end up going through tar pits and stuff and uh you know, only a hundred people get to finish and get finishes t-shirts and all of those crazy things. It's not anything like uh, the organizers could have anticipated. Obviously the product is not going to be the very cool, very exciting Olympic games that, uh, that Tokyo would have been able to put on. And, you know, I, I was saying to you, Ricardo, just before we, we started recording that this will almost be like an advert for those games because there won't be international visitors. There won't be fans in the stadiums. There won't be, the kind of in-person um, activities and uh, and and communal activities that that define Olympic Games um, in the host city. Um, I want to come to you in a sec, Ricardo, on what a sponsor would ordinarily be doing and what a partner would ordinarily be doing around this time, and and you know uh, what what some of your colleagues in that space might be doing now um given the limitations of the games but sam the other thing is 
you know, an Olympics, particularly before it starts. And Olympics is a story generation machine throughout the two weeks, probably throughout the seven years uh, between when a host is announced historically and, and, and when it when it gets to, to put it on. And in this case, obviously, it's eight years. But this kind of period now where you have the IOC session, so you have a lot of contact between um, IOC members and, and the press, and also, you know, just where people are, all congregate looking for things to report on. We know all about the contradictions that that everyday life throws up under COVID, and um, you know this country does not have the greatest track record for uh, well aligned and easy to follow protocols. But you know that's going to be a definitive feature of these opening days. I mean, Philip Barker, who uh, is writing for Inside the Games, he's a journalist and, and historian, uh, who people in the in the industry and in the movement might be familiar with. He had a a contact positive contact so he's quarantined at the moment for 14 days which obviously an athlete wouldn't have to do but again it throws up some of the contradictions that's his olympics almost wiped out um you know we're going to get these stories and and for the organizers it's going to be a real test of metal to to survive some of that as well yeah definitely and i think it's it speaks to something that i've i've spoken to quite a few people about this in terms of you know will these stories start to go away once the games begin because as um, Ricardo sort of alluded to before when he was talking about Rio in 2016 and Sochi and Pyeongchang. There are, as you say, there are always these kind of things bubbling, bubbling away in the background before the action gets underway. And then once it does, um, they kind of start to fade into the background a little bit more. Um, my only concern with this year is that, um, you know, COVID isn't something going to sort of fade into the background. It's going to be influencing every every facet of these games. It's going to be there's going to be constant reminders of it, whether it be no fans in the stands, uh, whether it be you know the potent you know there's, there's still the chance that one of the one of the stars of these games could unfortunately contract coronavirus um, just you know by rotten luck, and that starts to dominate proceedings as well. Um, and I guess also. When I think about Rio in 2016, I think about the fact that a lot of the pictures being broadcast from there were of the surrounding area. You'd, you know, you'd see a full Copacabana beach, a kind of festival atmosphere, and that definitely kind of um, took a lot of the attention away from some of the negatives that had been there in the build-up. Whereas, you know, broadcasters aren't going to be able to lean on that this time. Really, Tokyo is in a state of emergency. There aren't going to be people having parties in the streets. Um, it's not going to be the same as that. So it is ultimately literally just going to be about how good, how good things are on, on the track, on the, in the pool, um, where, wherever these athletes are competing, that's what it's going to come down to ultimately. If, if, you know, organizers can kind of stave any attention away from the constant reporting on, on COVID and the impact that it's having on the event. Absolutely. I mean, Ricardo, to what extent when you're a partner of the games, do you plan for this period, the this hinge period between the preparation and everything getting underway? You know, is there? Are you aware of a transition in the messaging? Are you aware of um, uh, an anticipation, or does that does that all happen on a kind of micro media level and in, at at the level that that sponsors are operating at? Um, it's it's much broader, much bigger picture. Well, from a global advertising standpoint, I mean, you're at this point, you're just putting all your efforts to 
to, to tell your stories and there's a lot of advertising and social media going on. Everything is happening. Uh, but, you know, sponsors, they, they know that there is all this negativity that comes with every game. And at some point when athletes started, starts to land in the host country and competition starts and medals starts uh, coming, um, th that's the story. Uh, you know, the sponsors are reasonably trained in that uh, pace of, 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 of news uh, and the negativity goes away, you know, at this point. I think what's happening differently with Japan, I mean, now there are so many different things happening in Japan. In the absence of, 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 of the media, of the sponsors, of everybody involved with the games, being able to talk to each other and meet and, 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 you know, and, and have the discussions and the events that, that happen around the Olympics, um, there, will be, there will be a void and people feel this void telling stories about there are no fans in the venues. Uh, and COVID, this is what's happening with COVID in Japan right now which, you know, it shouldn't be a story at this point. Uh, you know, when you hear, you hear a lot of people complaining that there will be no fans in, in stadium. For, for the vast majority of the people, the Olympics have always been a television event. So that's absolutely irrelevant. I feel bad for the people in Japan because, of course, I mean, it's, you wait for so long to have the games in your, in your city, in your country, and you want to see, you want to be part of it. And, and, and unfortunately, you can't. So that's very bad for them. It's bad for the, the domestic sponsors. But for the international sponsors, for the top sponsors, that's really not a, a big deal. They are suffering with hospitality. So at these days, a few days before the, the game starts, you should have all your management in the country. You should have you know, thousands of guests coming through and, and being part of, uh, of your hospitality program. Um, you are, you know, you're busy entertaining customers and partners, and, and that's not happening. That's not happening for the international sponsors. That's not happening for the domestic sponsors. Um, but, but other than that, for, you know, for me sitting here in Atlanta or for you know, my family sitting in Brazil, the games are going to be as good as the previous one have been um, because we were just uh, watching competition on television and the broadcasters are going to do the best they can to, to make it entertaining. Have you had much sense from people you know in, in the sponsorship industry of how they're approaching this challenge, how how they're looking at Tokyo and, and how they may be either replacing or re-emphasizing some of the activity that they would be doing um, in fan zones and through hospitality, as you say, and, and in the host city. I, I think that the uncertainty of, of the last few months led a lot of the sponsors to um, either wait longer to commit to the you know promotions and, and campaigns and advertising than they would have been otherwise. Uh, when you look at the at the top sponsors, the level of of promotion that you see today, I think it's much lower than it was in the past. And not because they don't want to do it, it's just because you know until a couple of a couple of weeks ago they were not sure if the games were really happening. So all the decisions that you have to make to you know, to 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 put promotions in the market, uh, they take longer than that. You have to commit media before. You have to you know if if you are a consumer goods company, you have to print packaging. You have to print posters to put on points of sale. So all of that takes months to happen. So the uncertainty um, created this uh, this this um, delay. And at some point, it's no longer possible to do it. So of course, you, you see the likes of of Coca Cola. Or Nike or Procter Gamble uh, here in the United States, uh, United is still promoting the games. So 
there are brands doing this, but not to the level that they would have been doing uh, in, a, in a normal situation. And where are they going to be looking to capture value around these games? Is it, I mean, does that, you know, how, how much does that really shift? Obviously, there's a huge uh, coterie of local sponsors who are going to have um, a different equation to work out. But for, for the top sponsors, does it does it really change the conversation that much? It do, it does to some extent, but not not that much. And the the only reason is, um, you know, when you when you are in this game for the long run, you know you're gonna get value later. So the IOC might not be able to to deliver as much value for every sponsor right now, but I'm sure they will do it next time. So. If if I was sitting in one of the sponsors' uh, position now, I wouldn't be very concerned with their ability to deliver value because I know it will come uh, in Beijing, it will come in Paris, it will come in Italy, it will come you know in in, in the US uh, as as the games uh, are happening. So that's that's not. But having said that, they made an effort to increase the volume of you know content and digital opportunities for the partners. Uh, which which helps, uh, but it doesn't it doesn't uh, fully uh, pay for um, you know all the things that the sponsors were expecting. And I know I'll give you a couple of examples. If you uh, two very close to me, so if you work for uh, uh, Coca Cola or Visa, the absence of fans in the venues is a problem. You have you know you have invested by now, you have invested a lot to uh, staff. Uh, equip, uh, train, uh, outfit, uh, concessions, and there won't be any products being sold in concessions. So if you are, you know, Visa, which takes care of all the payments of of the games, by now you would have invested in terminals for payments, in communication, uh, in venues, and all of that. So all this, all this commerce activity will not be happening, uh, and and there is no digital value that can pay back the investment that was made. Well, luckily these companies, they have enough experience, so they're gonna redeploy all the equipment and they're going to reduce the impact, but they know that the value will come next time. So that's why you don't see a lot of, a lot of, um, a lot of sponsors taking any, any um, more radical decisions or, or complaining or anything like that, because you know, they, are, they are in this game for the long run. I wouldn't like to be in the position of a domestic sponsor in Japan today because I think this is a, a very unfortunate and there's there is really not a lot of room for them to maneuver. Yeah, I was just going to jump in because it's something that uh, when Ricardo and I last spoke, um, I did ask him about because I, 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 and doing some research for my piece in the mag, I was, I was trying to figure out if anyone had released like, you know, an ad, what any of the top sponsors had released an ad yet. And I think the only one that I came across was Procter and Gamble. Um, I think they'd released one, uh, I can't remember what it was called, but it was, it was called lead with love or something like that. But, um, and so I kind of, I kind of wanted to ask quite, you know, am, am I looking in the wrong places? Um, or, you know, is it just simply the fact that activity is so much more muted this year because of, yeah, just the apprehension around the games, um, having to get the messaging right, the risk of committing a significant budget towards a campaign, and then you know two weeks later it's made redundant because of a change um, in the build up to the event. And on the back of that, what I was quite interested to to kind of try and figure out was precisely how sponsors 
that do start that are going to do stuff in the next couple of weeks because you know I'm sure um as Ricardo said you know there might be domestic sponsors maybe scaling back in in Japan because they don't want to alienate their consumers there and they don't want to kind of get on the wrong side of the message but you know they're still some of the tops I'm sure will still be running marketing activities internationally um you know a consumer watching the games in the US isn't going to share the same fears as someone in Japan around around this event for example so you know kind of one of one of the things I wanted to get to the bottom of was how they're going to do that and how they're going to get the messaging right and uh having spoken to quite a few people about it it was that you know you have to you have to acknowledge the struggle um but not focus on it too much because people are still going to want to have um a little bit of hope they're going to want to see a little bit of hope in the messaging around the games as well um and it just it's it's that still seems like quite a difficult balance to strike um for me uh, and I just, I just wonder whether you know a lot of sponsors will be looking at it and thinking you know it's it's not necessarily worth the risk this time around as, as you know as ricardo said we will we will wait we have got we have got beijing in six months we have got paris in 24 we have got um italy in 26 and i kind of i think i think that's what we're seeing yeah and and folded into that is the you know something i was going to come on to after the break but i think this is a nice point to introduce it uh, or a, a, a telling point to introduce it is the decision of Toyota not to activate nationally Japanese car maker home Olympic Games. Um, they're not going to be running national campaigns during the Olympics, promoting their association with Tokyo 2020. They're not going to be sending many executives to the functions that they can attend. Um, and, you know, a big part of the story of these games is that they may well end up being, or they may well already be much less popular in Japan than they are in the rest of the world, where for everybody else, they're a a televisual spectacle and a nice distraction. For Japan, it's a daily reminder of of a a COVID situation that they are not comfortable with. Um, Ricardo, what was your reaction to that Toyota decision? I mean, it's, it's... they're not going to be distancing themselves from the games outside of Japan is, is, is an interesting, um, uh, interesting point of context there because, you know, it gives you a sense of, of, of all of those different tessellating pieces that, you know, sponsors are working with when it comes to promoting their association with the games. But what, what was your, what was your take on that? There are a couple of things, um, which are interesting on this decision from, from Toyota. The, the, the first one is, this is a very inexpensive insurance PR policy that they bought. Because it's, from a business standpoint, it has probably no impact in what will happen with their business and their brands and their, and their sales in, you know, in, in the short, mid, long term. Uh, for Toyota or for any other sponsor, if by now they have not capitalized on the sponsorship and, and used the sponsorship to tell their story, they haven't done their jobs. And Toyota did a great job. They've been doing this. They are very active. They talk about it uh, all the time, uh, you know, from ads in Super Bowls to you know, every day. So they're one of the most active sponsors. So I think they have captured all the value and some more uh, of, of, the, of the sponsorship. Uh, you know, the fact that it's only in Japan is just, you know, to, you know, to save them from any criticism um, for, you know, for, for, for being involved um, internationally, they're still going to do everything they need to do. So again, it's you know I- irrelevant for the decision for most people outside Japan. 
Uh, and the and the last thing is uh, because the, there are the, a couple of decisions. One is to stop airing uh, commercials, the Olympic commercials in Japan, and the other one is not sending their executive to the open ceremony. The opening ceremony is going to be super limited. There's going to be like two people uh, for each sponsor, uh, which what they're saying is that the CEO and the COO or the CEO and his wife are not going to the opening ceremony, which is, you know, symbolically is meaningful uh, because they are saying we don't agree with this. So there is value in that. But the reality is that it's uh, it's not as much as a big deal as most people are talking about. We're going to pick up on some of the points of perception around the Olympic movement in the second part of the podcast, but we'll just take a quick break now uh, and we'll be back with you just after this. Hello, this is Matt Rogan. I've spent my career creating and scaling businesses in sports and entertainment. And now I'm trying to find out how businesses can best make their way through these extraordinary times. So together with SportsPro and with leaders from inside and outside sport, I've created the Playbook series. It's the place to go for agenda-free, pragmatic advice to navigate your organization through change. Catch up on our library of articles and podcasts and learn more about how our new labs program can help you succeed. Head to sportspromedia.com slash playbook to find out more. Welcome back to the Sports Pro podcast. Um, guys, at the top of the program, we were talking a bit about the future of the games over a longer span and how Tokyo's different from uh, what's been before and what's been afterwards for for um, unprecedented, unanticipated uh, reasons far outside the scope of, uh, of the IOC, believe it or not. Um, but the, the, the this event feels a bit like a hinge as well. It feels a bit like a transition from that previous period to this next one and from what the Olympics can, has been to what it can be. But all of that is viewed through a prism of, of the Olympic movement's reputation, um, you know, the IOC's reputation among host cities, but more importantly, among fans, its relevance, the things, the kinds of stories it gets attached to either during games time or in between games, um, you know, particularly when it comes to some of the obligations that it has historically held cities to. And, and in some in some quarters, uh, people might be making those same arguments again about Tokyo hosting this year in, in, in the public health conditions that, that we're facing. Um, you know, how important, Sam, do you think the next few weeks are going to be to the evolution of the Games, given some of the protests we're going to see locally um, from citizens in Tokyo, given this this duality of, of the Olympics being popular, but kind of always always you know involved in, in in some of these more negative stories yeah i think it's going to be really important because i think you know the the last 12 months or 12 i should say 16 months really since the since the postponement have kind of you know removed some of the layers uh that were there maybe around the ioc you know the kind of historically it had the olympic movement has been all about you know this idea of unity the power of sport whereas i guess in the past sort of 12 12 months or so we have sort of seen the side of the IOC, which is like every sports organization has to be quite commercially driven or it has had to be quite commercially driven because, you know, the Olympic movement relies so much on, on the revenues that are, that are generated from the commercial contracts that, that the IOC has. Um, so in light of that, you know, I think the next three weeks are going to be greatly significant in kind of, you know, 
getting back to the core of of what the Olympics are or what they what people do perceive them to be. Um, and you know, just that idea of kind of persevering through the last 12 months, I think that's going to be quite important. Restoring public faith a little bit in, in what people thought the Olympics were before the last 12 months. Because I do, I do personally feel like that perception has maybe changed a little bit and um, people have kind of seen another side to it that they maybe didn't pre-COVID. I mean, there, there's a, a difficulty, Ricardo, for the IOC, for everybody involved with the Games, really, in that when the delay happened... Uh, back in March of, of last year, I think the expectation was that this was going to be the big global reopening. It was going to be a big celebration. Uh, perhaps we wouldn't be out of the woods as far as COVID was concerned, but you know, vaccinations would have made a lot of things possible. And um, that hasn't proved the case. It has for some other events. We just had European Championship across 11 countries in this part of the world, which while it had its... Uh, detractors i think a lot of people kind of embraced the normality that it represented uh, a little too enthusiastically in in some quarters a little bit close to home um but the problem that the ioc has is that this is still in this moment and it's not as dangerous as it would have been in july of 2020 but it's not it's not a big optimistic festival for humanity, which I think is is probably what was in their mind's eye um, in the middle of last year. Yeah, I think it depends on where you are in the world and your level of optimism and and freedom. Um, you know, directly co- correlated with the level of vaccinations that that you see. So, you know, for for countries that are are coming out of this uh, out of this crisis, now they will look at the games, and it's going to be more celebratory than in other places. Uh, in, in Japan in particular, because of where they are, it's clearly not uh, what we all expected. I, I, I talked about it many times. I thought, you know, by the time the games are happening, Japan is going to be out of it and it's going to be a big party. It's going to be uh, exactly what it used to be. And, you know, and I was wrong and a lot of people were wrong too in, in, in thinking uh, th- this way. Uh, but ha- having said that, I think that, it's a it's a complicated it's a complex operation to have that many people in the same place safely performing at events, but it's doable. And now they know what to do. And I think the protocol that the IOC put in place would allow them to you know to execute the games uh, uh, properly. Would it be what we expect it to be? No, it, it won't. But uh, it is uh, it is doable. And the reality is that every event that is happening during the summer, it offers a different kind of risk. Uh, so if you compare Euros, Copa America, and, and, and the Olympics, they have different, uh, different areas of attention and, and, and they offer different levels of, of risk. Now, if you take, so you know, in, for Euro, a lot of countries, a lot of different levels of vaccination with venues full. That's one problem to you know to be managed. Uh, if you go to Japan, you know it's uh, a lot of athletes, but in one place and no fans. It's a completely different set of problems to handle. And uh, uh, in the Copa America was low level vaccination, no fans, and you know not a lot of respect for rules. Uh, but the Euro went really well. Copa America went really well. 
Uh, and you know, there's no reason to think that Japan will not go well. Um, we'll miss the party, but you know, that's that's the price for having the games. Yeah, it's also sorry to jump in, but it's also like difficult to think of a of an event in the last the last year that has happened post sort of in the midst of the pandemic where there hasn't been this sort of criticism before. Even I even think back to when the when the Premier League resumed in in the UK, um, there were YouGov polls at the time saying most people thought it was a bad idea to to start it up again, and then you know once. Once the action did get underway, people were like, oh, football's back. That's 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 good. Um, and it's, I don't know. I just feel like that, as Ricardo says, there has been kind of a similar narrative throughout the last twelve months. Whenever we are leading into whether it's a league resuming, an event happening, um, and then you know, people once they have, once they have sort of seen it, it's gone, it's gone okay, and it's and it and it has sort of it it has reached the finish line as as you know, hopefully, hopefully Tokyo will. One of the things that I feel is kind of central to the future message of the Olympics is is a bit of a decentralization of it, um, where it becomes less about the IOC and more about trying to give as many people who have a, a, a role to play in the games a voice as possible. And, and I'm thinking primarily of, of athletes, but obviously there will be fan stories to tell around the world and um, various digital and, uh, and traditional media operations that are going to be in a position to, to do that. Before we get into that, though, Ricardo, what's the continued value of an association with the Olymp- with the Olympic Games? What are you getting from that that you're not getting from anywhere else? There, there is no other sporting organization that is as purpose driven as the IOC is, and fans recognize that. Um, when you think about other sports, uh, you the reason for consuming them are very different than the reason for consuming the Olympics. Uh, the Olympics managed over the years to, to build this association with values. The fact that they bring people from all places together, the fact that everybody uh, is, is welcome, the fact that is a celebration as well. Um, they, are, they are inclusive. They try to be uh, as uh, equal and diverse as they, as they can be. So these are not values that other sports bring. So if you, when you think about other sports, you think about the competition, the action, um, the, uh, the, the pride to support a, a club or uh, a country. Uh, so, but they are very different. And so the reasons why brand, brands invest in the Olympic and become associated with the Olympics is because they want to be part of that story that only the Olympic uh, movement, the Olympic Games can, uh, can tell. And... When you, when you talk to consumers, when you talk to fans of different ages, the younger fans, the, the current generation of younger fans, they are more attracted to the Olympic Games than the, the past generation has been because this generation is a generation that is also driven by, by purpose and values. So they see, in the, they recognize that in the Olympic Games and that has a lot of value for a lot of brands. Um, in addition to that, there is there are other benefits that other events also offer, which is the scale and the quality uh, and 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 the reach, the scale, the scale of, of of possibilities that you have when you are marketing global brands. So there are many reasons to do it. Uh, you know, I my experience working with the, the brands that I worked with is that was that uh, whenever the brands invest in promoting the Olympic Games, their business do better, and I. I, I managed to prove that with very complicated models 
uh, correlating and attributing performance of the business with the investments. So I can I can tell with you know high confidence that brands that invest in Olympic Games they do better than when they don't, and that's another reason for business to continue to uh, to to pay the high price of being invest associated with the Olympic Games. Now, I mean, this sum is probably another podcast in itself, but the role of athletes is going to be really fascinating over the next two weeks because um, we're going to see most likely some political expression. We're going to see activism on a different scale. We're going to see, uh, in an apolitical sense, we're going to see kind of influencer culture and even greater use than before of social media, particularly as there's not the opportunity to, to kind of connect uh, in in other ways with the with the city, um, you know, it, it feels to me like this is something that the Olympics on both sides of of that coin on in terms of the increased personal freedom of expression that other other sports federations are happy now to give uh, their competitors, and and you know, we'll add the caveat that the Olympic Games is is more complicated in that respect because you have pretty much every nation in the world involved and different cultural expectations and so on. Um, but there is going to be that pressure. And then the commercial involvement, the wanting to have, you know, a kind of many to many network of, um, of stories around the games that comes through the athletes and their desire to, uh, to, to earn their share as well over the next, uh, over the next period as, as that, as that takes shape. Um, so th- that's going to be something to watch over the next two weeks as well. Yeah, definitely. I think, um, I think there's an inevitability about, you know, political demonstrations of sorts. I just think it's going to be, it's going to be interesting to track kind of how aligned it is, I suppose, you know, when, um, when we've seen it in other sports, it's kind of, it's, it's got almost become part of the routine now in football, hasn't it? And here in England anyway, it's something taking the knee is something that you see every, every week before Premier League fixtures. Um, but I just think that, that over, the, over the last 12 months, you know, that rising tide, that outpouring of athlete activism is something that um, even the IOC has recognised that it won't be able to stop, which is why it's done that sort of relaxing of of, um, of Rule 50 for, um, for, this, for this summer, which obviously is going to allow athletes to, I think they can do a gesture or, you know, wear a t-shirt, for example, displaying a political message um, before the event, but um, not on the podium as, you know, memorably uh, John Carlos and Tommy Smith did in Mexico 1968. But, um, you know, I think I think if, if that does happen, because, you know, it would just be interesting to see if that's something that's adhered to as well, you know, the, the whole podium ban, because one thing that athletes have shown um, more recently is that they're not afraid of, you know, the repercussions of expressing their views because, Ultimately, and I'm not sure if they trust the, the organising bodies above them to, to represent those views on their behalf. So I wouldn't be surprised if if we do see an athlete take a stand on the podium. And I think it would be particularly interesting if it's one of the stars of the games, you know, like a Naomi Osaka, who has who has um, engaged in activism in the past year, and obviously more recently um, has spoken really openly about her mental health struggles. Or even a Noah Lyles, who who raised a glove fist at the U.S. Olympic trials last month. Um, and if that does happen, I think it'll be really interesting to see how how the IOC responds to that because you know no doubt it would be it would be in for some criticism if it if it did come down particularly hard. Yeah, I mean there will be athletes who are out to cause good trouble. I think it is is uh, the old expression from from John Lewis. But um, you know, Ricardo, that's going to be 
it's going to be a test for the IOC, and it's going to especially be a test for the IOC if we see a little bit what happened during Euro 2020, which is brands and media companies kind of swinging behind the cause and swinging behind the athletes and um, and not making it possible to kind of corral the message into a, into a an anodyne direction, shall we say? Yes, it's not an easy um, an, an easy uh, situation to to be managed by the IOC. I think the IOC was reasonably uh, flexible with that. They are not saying you cannot protest. They are saying you cannot protest when you are in the podium. And I think that's that's that opens up a lot of room for athletes to do things that they think are appropriate in other in other moments. Um, the 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 result of the of the research that I the survey that I've I've seen with athletes was that most of them uh, were not pro manifestations of political or whatever other forms in, in the podiums. So I think that most of the athletes will would agree to that. Uh, but now, if it happens, we have to see how they are going to deal with the situation. Uh, you know, as a sponsor, uh, which I'm no longer. I would. I was disappointed with how UEFA dealt with the Cristiano Ronaldo situation at, at the Euro. And again, similar similar case, right? Superstar does something which is clearly wrong, um, should have been punished. It wasn't. Uh, that's a that's a, a responsibility. That's a UEFA responsibility. And and I think that in this case, UEFA failed at fulfilling that obligation. Uh, so. I don't think the IOC will be uh, as accommodating as UEFA was with Cristiano Ronaldo. Just to bring it back into a, a slightly more commercial direction, we've only got a couple of minutes left here. But um, the 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 question of of control of of the message, control of rights, um, there's a big opportunity for amplification in in the next couple of decades through digital media, through the kind of um, influence a culture for want of a better expression. Um, you know, to, to, to basically allow athletes to pick up the story and, and take it and become the faces of that story to the people who they connect with best um, in a way that a big central brand isn't going to be capable of doing. What's what's the challenge that that brands, that rights holders are setting themselves up for, Ricardo, in, um, in embracing that but you know, you mentioned the the kind of frustration at, at Cristiano Ronaldo uh, interrupting <laughs> the brand message during the Euros. Um, you know what? How, how do how do you balance those two things? And, and is there going to be a bit of trial and error? Are there going to be people kind of stepping outside, coloring outside the lines a little bit in order to get to where you want to be? I think it's you know, I see this more as an opportunity for brands than a threat. And in, in, if you think about what brands were doing with athletes in the past, they were basically hiring athletes for their you know, performance. And today you have so many more stories you can tell with athletes that are more meaningful for, for what the companies are trying to do, that athletes have become uh, uh, even more powerful marketing uh, tool, marketing uh, uh, no, a way of, of, of telling Olympic or, or, or football, whatever stories, because now you can tell your company's um, inclusion and diversity stories through athletes. You can tell your environmental stories through athletes because they care about that. They talk about that and they can amplify credibly what, what you are doing. 
So uh, when, when brands uh, tell me that they are afraid of working with athletes because they may say or do things, you know, I, I think if you do your homework and you, you partner with the right, the right people that have the same aligned values as your company, as your brand, chances are it's going to be much better for brands uh, that it has uh, ever been. I think, um, sorry, just to jump in, I think also just um, the whole sort of athletes and, and kind of the message, I think it's going to be really interesting to watch during this Olympics in particular. And because, you know, they're going to give us a real look behind the curtain through their own platforms, I think. Um, I don't necessarily know exactly how much access media have, but, you know, the general general perception before this is that for the athletes, it's going to be a kind of quite a rigid experience. Um, they're going to be leaving as soon as they get there. But, you know, if they, if they take control of themselves and, you know, as we saw with kind of other bubbles like the NBA, for example, where players were really, uh, really took to kind of giving the fans an inside look at that. And, you know, you see Olympians kind of doing similar and, I don't know, uh, you know, just portraying a little bit more of a positive experience of, um, of what's happening there and that, you know, ultimately, really, you know, they're not being held hostage there. They do want to be there. Um, they do want to be there competing and they are actually enjoying the whole experience. I think, I think that could be a really influential um, thing in, in terms of how these games are perceived as well. Yeah, that, that, that human, human connection um, that's not going to be uh, as, as tangible within the venues, they'll, they'll, they'll be uh, responsible for communicating. Um, guys, we are, I think we've, we've probably talked enough for this one, but um, let's, we, for all the trepidation, for all the reservations that people are naturally going to have about these games, let's have a, have a note of optimism from each of you to to finish us off and to uh to get us into the opening ceremony um what's one thing sam that you're looking forward to from tokyo 2020 i'm just looking forward to seeing how it plays out because i i've never gone into an olympic game before where there are so many unknowns so i'm just unknowns so i'm just genuinely kind of intrigued to see what it's going to look like um you know how how the broadcasters innovate around it to kind of make that experience more enjoyable for everyone watching from home and you know ultimately just watching sports that i never do watch because that's what the olympics is really about for me uh i I don't necessarily follow a lot of the athletes that are going to be involved so it's kind of just the opportunity again to hopefully spend the next three weeks watching you know some new stars emerge some records be broken and yeah just be entertained by uh by some sports that you know, outside of every other four years, I don't necessarily don't necessarily engage with. Ricardo, I am looking forward to see again history happening live, uh, which is what happens every every Olympic Games. Uh, the The alternative to having a very difficult games to execute, which was not having the games, is not an option for me. So I think that no matter how hard these ones have been or are going to be. In the next uh, uh, seventeen days, I think it's uh, it was well worth all the uh, all the effort and just the opportunity that everybody that likes sports will have to see you know the best of the best happening and and making history again. That that will stay in our in our sports fans' stories for the rest of our lives. So um, everything that happens in the Olympic Games is is a, is a piece of my my emotional memory with sports and I'm looking forward uh, adding some more to my, to my personal story in the next two weeks. All right, then guys, thank you very much for your time to Sam Carp. Cheers, Owen. Cheers, Ricardo. 
Yeah, and Sam, we will have to uh, get you to furnish us with your uh, your schedule from the first week uh, with all, all these obscure and unusual sports that you're going to be checking in with. <laughs> um, thanks as well to Ricardo Fort. Great to talk to both of you. And thanks to all of you for listening. We'll be back with you again very soon. Bye-bye. The Sports Pro Podcast is published by Sports Pro Media. The producer is Ed Dixon.